This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Let me say thank you and welcome back to Sina Gaznavi, my partner in power. Sina now is where you can follow him and let me welcome. I'm holding up a book right now because if you can see, this is a book that I have. uh, Yeah, spent a lot of of time. (laughs) Yeah, I spent a lot of time because when I started reading it, I got pages turned back, dog-eared, and I have all of this, all of these markers because I was at every page floored. This book is called The Half Has Never Been Told. I have recommended it probably more than any book I've ever recommended on this show because if anybody tells me that uh, slavery, I didn't benefit from it, and you read this book, then you're just stupid or you're you're willfully uh, lying to yourself about the impact of slavery on this economy and this culture. So let me welcome first... He is an author, of course, of many books, but this is my favorite. The Half Has Never Been been Told. He's a professor of history at Cornell University. Let me welcome Dr. Edward E. Baptist. Welcome back. Uh, thanks for having me back. Um, yes. Really uh, excited to be here again. Me too. And, uh, and just, joining – wait, go, wait tell well, me I this after – Well, I just want to give a shout-out if anybody's listening in, uh, in Durham, North Carolina, because uh, usually when I get on here, I, I hear from uh, some folks I went to, to high school with. So, I love yeah, that. There, uh, I so. love yes, yeah. the Karen to show has great reach. Uh, and welcome to the first time I, I've talked. I've spoken the, your last name a lot on these airways from your <laughs> from your your uncle, uh, Dr. Leonard Jeffries to your brother, Hakeem Jeffries, who lights it up every time he's there on the floor, floor of Congress saying the things he needs to say. And now I'm like, oh, wait a minute. This Jeffries clan is badass. Let me welcome. He is associate <laughs> professor of history at Ohio State University. Let me welcome Dr. Hassan Kwame Jeffries for the first time. Welcome. Well, thank you very much, Karen. It's great to be with you. Listen, um, the work that you guys are doing, and I didn't know that you were connected. We had a, a, a gentleman on, Bill Perkins, who we've had on before, especially during the Thrive Thursday. But we had him on on a Tech Tuesday because he's doing something with algorithms and disseminating uh, some of the enslaved um, you know, the, the, the notices around people who ran away from bondage. And he's, codif- you know, he's bringing all of this into one space. And then I found out that you guys actually provide most of – the information that he's using. So uh, talk about your connection to one another because you don't work at the same school and, and you're, you're doing this in, in unison. So, so tell me, let me talk to you first, Dr. Jeffries, because I've never talked to you before. How did this union happen? Well, actually, I, I want to I pass the baton ever so briefly uh, to my friend and colleague Ed because Ed is really at the center of this at Cornell. It is a collaborative uh, effort not only with Cornell and Ohio State, but we have faculty at University of uh, down in New Orleans, in, in Kentucky, and in Alabama. So, if you don't mind, if I, I want to defer to my colleague, and we'll come back to me if that's okay, Karen. That's perfect. All right. Yeah. So uh, our project is called Freedom on the Move, and it's a database of uh, so-called runaway slave ads. We we refer to them frequently as self-liberating people, uh, and. You had Bill Perkins on last week, and I thought he did a great job sort of uh, talking about some of the main issues and talking about the work that he's doing kind of in collaboration with us. So we're getting a lot of data. Uh, he's he's uh, getting the data into great shape uh, with with uh, artificial intelligence and with getting the transcripts together, and we're sharing data back and forth. So these projects are very much in cooperation. What I wanted to do uh, this week was um, – 
maybe if if we had the chance to talk about some of the ways that people can get can actually get involved in this project uh, beyond academia, uh, beyond um, computer programmers, but uh, the way that people can use it in schools and museums and community groups and genealogy and things like that. And that's a big part of why Professor Jeffries is on board with with the uh, the project uh, because of the outreach that he does to try to improve the teaching of history in this country, which, as you know, could use some improvement. You, you're very understated, sir, <laughs> Dr. Baptist. Um, <laughs> Dr. Jeff, why is this important? You know, because as Bill Perkins was talking about it uh, last week, I was uh, I was reminded, you know, we, we have these narratives. Again, usually when I went to school, slavery was taught. It was uh, two pages in my history book. Uh, it mostly had, like, black people in the holds of ships. It, it talked about it from a very, you know, kind of victim standpoint. They didn't talk about people running away. They didn't talk about the Maroons. They didn't talk about the Haitian Revolution, not any long, you know, or how it impacted this government and how, you know, fugitive slave laws impacted everything else and three-fifths compromised. We never made that connection. Why is it important for us to know that people ran away? They ran away a lot. They ran away uh, with life and limb at risk. Why is that an important conversation? Well, so we avoid approaching the history of enslavement in America like Kanye West. Right. Thinking about black folk as as being complicit in their own enslavement. Right? When we study resistance, what we're actually doing is saying that black folk were not complicit in their enslavement. In fact, they fought back. The true freedom fighters in American history are not the patriots we celebrate on the American Revolution. I mean, they, they, they were fighting for something, but they weren't fighting for the true liberation of all people. That fell to the shoulders uh, of black folk over the centuries as they resisted their enslavement. And, and if we don't study resistance, uh, we're actually, we wind up um, really miseducating, not just black students or students of color, we're miseducating everybody. You know, too often I have a friend, uh, a literary performer out of Boston by the name of Reggie Gibson, uh, and he said something really profound. He said, uh, we as Americans actually hate history. What we love is nostalgia. We love stories mm-hmm. about the past that make us yeah. feel comfortable about the present. And, and so, what we, what, so our resistance to resistance uh, is that, wait a minute, if, if people are resisting, then there's something more going on than we thought. Uh, and so that really is a wonderful point of entry, not only to humanize and truly understand what it is that black folk were doing, uh, but really to understand what, is, what was this nation about, right? If you're resisting, then you've got to be resisting something. Uh, and the way in which slavery, and, and Ed lays out so beautifully uh, in his book, The Half Has Never Been Told, how deeply entrenched the institution of slavery was in all aspects of American life, particularly economic and political. Um, and so this is, so we got to get away from nostalgia. We got to get away from the Disney version of history. And that means confronting some of these difficult aspects of our past and focusing on the ways in which African Americans were engaged in this life, in this in, multi-generational struggle uh, for what you always say, freedom, right? Securing their freedom from the moment we uh, land on these shores, literally up until the present. Give us a couple. Um, you, you Actually, you know, Dr. Baptist, when, when I read about Patsy in here, this is one of the stories that stuck out most to me because this is a, a woman that we saw immortalized on a big screen by uh, Lupita Nyong'o in 12 Years a Slave. But when you write about her in this book, what, what I walked away with was this notion of evolution within a generation, and it shifted something in my, in my spirit, which is why this book is so, so dog-eared because what you were saying is that because of the whip, this little woman had to pick 500 pounds of cotton every day or else. 
and it allowed her to separate the hemispheres of her brain to have more dexterity to pick more cotton because she would be beaten if not. And she became the standard on that plantation for everybody else. And I thought about the enormous burden of that, right? And, and what that did to her psyche, not just the evolution, but how many more patsies were there? So I look at her as kind of a microcosm of so many uh, of, of our ancestors in this space of bondage who had to shift and change their, their internal makeup to do more than a cotton gin, to do more picking cotton than, than a machine. Give us some of these stories of people who ran away because that story changed my life. Tell us something of folk that we wouldn't know about. Yeah, that's a great question because if if you sort of flip the the Patsy story, which which is crucial and 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 real, uh, but if you flip it around, you see that in fact resistance was also ever present, right? And it was a way in which people did evolve themselves and transform themselves into something else, and along the way, discover concepts of freedom that. I would argue no human being had ever been able to enunciate, right, and to build movements that nobody had been able to build before. I mean, a great historian of abolitionism, uh, Manisha Sinha, makes the point that uh, it, it is really African-Americans who create abolitionism in this country, and through that they create everything that we understand as progressive politics in this country comes ultimately out of that taproot of abolitionism. And if we look at that, the basis of abolitionism is people running away, is people running away uh, and building a movement out of solidarity, people escaping. A great example of that uh, that you might not have heard of is um, in, in Ithaca, New York, where I live, in the city cemetery, uh, there's a gravestone to uh, faithful Daniel Jackson. And this is a man who escaped from slavery in Virginia, came all the way up to Ithaca, New York in the 1850s, managed to uh, establish a home for himself. And then went back and got his mother out of slavery. And she was in her 70s at that time. I have no idea how they got out from Virginia. I have no idea how they made it up to Ithaca with the Fugitive Slave Act going on and with a reward on their heads, right, uh, with the entire federal government arrayed against them. And yet they did that, right? And he established a life here. He brought his mother and helped to create a community that – Really, I mean, the institutions built in that generation of people who got out of slavery here in the Ithaca African-American community that persist to this day, right, that are still giving life to people to this day. So when, when we think about slavery, we also have to think about resistance. And we think about what slavery tore down uh, and, and stole from people. We also have to think about what they created uh, in order to survive and, and in order to resist despite that. Mm. Uh, Dr. Dr. Bassett, I, I guess um, there's, this is amazing. I, and I already, while we were talking, downloaded uh, the book and the audio version as well, so <laughs> that I can that I can go over it as well. Um, I guess I'd love to know in the in the course of history, and maybe this is a question to both Dr. Bassett and Dr. Jeffries. How do we reconcile the nostalgia and the actual education of of history? Uh, moving forward, right? How do we shift the burden or maybe the responsibility from uh, from the ancestors of slaves, right, black people in America, to the uh, people that enslaved them, to the ancestors of the slaveholders? Because too often, you know, I'm a producer and I make a lot of content for a lot of corporations, and especially in the last few months, it said, why don't we show all the people of color at the company and, and talk 
and have them talk about their experiences. And I was like, that seems to me like the worst idea I've ever heard in my life. Why don't we talk to the white people and ask them all the, all the things that they've done that have shown their privilege? So I guess my question is, how do we reconcile that, that story and that narrative? Because America's really good at advertising, really good at telling a story. And how do we reconcile that with the education that we need to shift and, and create and make for ourselves moving forward? Yeah, that's a that's a great question, I, and we have to engage with uh, with this difficult history. And and so, I I think that uh, there are a lot of ways to do it. We have to be able to accept uh, both. We have to be able to accept the difficult things as well as the easy things about history. Uh, and and so I think something like um, removing the Confederate monuments, right, which we've seen happen in all kinds of ways in this year in particular. Right, I think is a great uh, example because it's an opportunity for us to think about uh, what is it that we've been hiding from ourselves by leaving these things up there, and of course they symbolize a whole whole um, universe of nostalgia about history. To use Professor Jeffrey's terminology, uh, and and what what can we replace them with, right? Um, and what's the process by which we get to that point? So one of the things we're really interested. And doing it with this um, faculty team that's uh, at, at Freedom on the Move is thinking about ways we can engage with communities, right, to, to help uh, to participate in that process. Because, you know, if, if you take down Robert E. Lee, some people say, oh, well, what are we going to have for history? Well, you know, in, in Richmond, uh, what activists are doing is they're they're projecting, uh, be, they're, they're promising, right, the city is promising to take down this enormous statue of Lee on a horse. Right. So they've got it fenced off so people can't tear it down uh, while they're figuring out how to take the statue out of there. In the meantime, activists are projecting a great big image of Harriet Tubman on the statue. Right. And there's a whole politics behind that. There's a whole process of learning about history, learning about Harriet Tubman, uh, stuff about Harriet Tubman that, that was not part of the national consciousness 10, uh, 20, 25 years ago that, that lies behind that simple act of doing it. But what if we could replicate that act around 100 or 1,000 or 10,000 communities in the United States where we stop and think about what is the history that we actually want to valorize and why do we want to do that? It's not an easy process, but it's a process uh, that I think would be useful to engage in. Both of you, and that's Edward E. Baptist. He is a professor of history at Cornell and Dr. Kwame, excuse me, Hassan Kwame Jeffries uh, at Ohio State. You're both at institutions, well, I would argue, because I'm, I'm reexamining everything. I would argue are the purveyors and the projectors of misinformation. They are really the bastions of this nostalgia, right? Because history is very, very, it's not science. It's not math. It's not absolute. It is really just determining who is telling the history and through what lens, right? And you guys have studied it. You are at the highest level. And, I'm, and, and I think we failed miserably uh, to, to get it right. And so how, how do you reconcile with that at the schools that you're in, many of whom may have some roots in, uh, in, this, in the bondage, may have participated in it on some level? You know, you, you, you're now seeing many of these institutions having reparations, you know, Brown and other places that, you know, actually made slavery uh, viable. How do you reconcile with that as professors? Well, I'll, I'll jump in here. You know, one, you know, there, there are a range of institutions, of course. Uh, and so there needs to be an accounting 
um, of the involvement, particularly sort of East Coast and some of the older institutions of their involvement, their complicity, uh, their support, their strengthening uh, of the institution of slavery. Uh, I'm personally at Ohio State. Uh, Ohio State is a land-grant university, comes about after the era of slavery ends. Uh, but Ohio State has a long history of segregation and, and racial discrimination that's rooted in the same beliefs uh, that maintain the institution of slavery, that being white supremacy. And at the same time, we also have to reconcile. Now, this is, this is a very distinctly sort of northern thing, right, uh, where Ohio comes in as a free state, for example, uh, and white Ohioans are very proud of themselves uh, for being a part of a free state. Uh, but the reason why Ohio came in as a free state in 1803 is because white Ohioans didn't want black people in the state, whether they were enslaved or free. Uh, and so Ohio doesn't have to deal with a slavery legacy, but it has to deal with a white supremacy legacy. Uh, and so we, 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 so everybody has work to do. Uh, but I will, I will also say this. Um, there are a growing group of scholars, and, and we've always had black scholars who have been on top of this. But now in these, in, in these major white, uh, predominantly white institutions, there's, there's a growing group of scholars. And that is, is, is foremost among them over the generations, over the last couple, last couple of decades, that have been setting the record straight. But part of the problem is we haven't had that trickle-down education yet. Uh, it hasn't reached and infiltrated um, appropriately enough into the school. So while we may be able to talk about this, and this is why Freedom on the Move is so important, because it's a way to get uh, the elementary and the high school and the middle school teachers uh, and students engaged in this truthful accounting of the past, uh, we haven't gotten there yet. And, 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 and that's going to be critical, because we cannot continue uh, to miseducate generations. So by the time we get to our students and they, they wind up in Cornell and Ohio State and elsewhere, they can't, they, they still have, they have these knowledge deficits on basic facts of the American past. Uh, and it's far time that we, we, we got past that. And one of the ways that we can do that is to really make sure that we deal with this history at the elementary, at the earliest grades. It's never too early to talk about injustice, injustice and justice, freedom and unfreedom. Uh, and to stop building, you know, you, you had said last thing you had said, you know, you know what what can we do? Uh, uh, Senator said, you know, we have to stop empathizing with creating empathy for enslavers, right? Like we do this with our children, right? We're going to celebrate President's Day in Washington and Jefferson in first grade and second grade. We're building empathy for enslavers. And so by the time we get to the eighth grade in Ohio, for example, we want to talk about American history. And we wonder why our students can't connect with enslaved folk and have no empathy for enslaved folk. But that's because we've been building up these enslavers without calling them that. And then now, they, 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 you know, they, they're shook. They're like, well, who am, I, who am I supposed to believe? So we have a lot of work to do. It has begun at the, 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 at the uh, you know, in, in the academy for sure. But we're still working on getting it into the schools, getting it in, into people's hands on the ground. Dr. Jeffries, um, what could allies like myself that aren't in elementary or high school anymore, as much as I'd love to go back to high school, uh, what can guys like me do that are trying to, you know, I talk to a lot of people. I get to talk to people on here. I got, I got to talk to people all over the place. And I love to try to share things. Like I share books and I, all these things. But we're, we're not, I'm not an academic. What can I do or what can allies do to kind of help forward this process along or help forward this mission along? Well, this is the beauty of the moment in which we live. I mean, so much information is now accessible uh, online and through various, through various media. So it's all, you know, we are always um, learners. N learning never stops, right? So we should always be continuing to try to learn ourselves. But we're also in a very important political moment. Uh, and so it, it, it's one thing to continue to educate and inform ourselves individually, but we also have to recognize that 
there are forces at play from the White House down. And we see this with the hard, with the, with the defaming of the 1619 Project, the pushing of this, uh, you know, 1776 foolishness that, that it, it may be articulated at the White House. But what then happens, and we're seeing with white supremacist militias, it animates uh, white supremacists on the ground to say, no, we are going to keep this information out of our schools. And so we need everybody uh, in the community to say, to, to, to raise a hand and be like, no, we need the teaching of the truth. We need to focus on this hard history, on these difficult subjects, and we need to do it accurately, and we need to do it early on and continue on through. We've got to scaffold this vertically as well as horizontally. This isn't just social studies. We need to be talking about this history uh, in literature, in language arts, and the like. And we don't have to have children to do it, right, because we have to put our pressure on our schools um, and to say, no, don't bow to the pressure of this anti-history um, uh, uh, that we're hearing from, and actually let's focus on uh, the history of the past, that hard history, those difficult subjects, so we compare, can prepare our students for the future. That's Professor Jeffries, and you can follow him literally at P-R-O-F, Professor Jeffries, on the Twitters. Uh, and, and go to freedomonthemove.org and check out what they're doing. Edward Baptist, when, when Dr. Jeffries talked about, you know, this kind of white supremacy, and I don't even want to use that term because it's a misnomer, there's, you, you're not, there's never been a supreme. Right. Because there's never been an inferiority. There's never been a less than. Right. So to even give voice to that, I think, elevates it to a space that eh, that's a lie. I've been trying to get to this point, uh, Dr. Baptist, and and I don't know you know, when this happened, but this notion of whiteness, this constructed notion of whiteness mm -hmm. that is really literally in juxtaposition of blackness and was created to keep this chasm. You got you. I'm looking at you. You don't have a lot of melanin. But uh, you've been in this fight for, for quite some time. We've had conversations off mic, on mic, uh, and I, I really respect your scholarship, but also your heart. And we've had your origin story last time you were on talking about growing up because I'm like, when were you radicalized? When did you know what changed your 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 view on things? Why this? You know, how do we get at this this core of people being wedded to something that doesn't exist but validates them in a way that they are literally mounting a war, a campaign to hold on to it. What advice do you have? Yeah, I, I, I wish I had the, the magic recipe, but, uh, but I know that it's a fight that's been going on for a while. And, and uh, one of the things we have to acknowledge is that it's a fight. And it's, a, it's literally a fight, I, I think, for the future of humanity. Uh, and it's been that for a while, right? Uh, but I think one of the things we have to recognize is that um, these ads actually get at a piece of it, which is that uh, whiteness, as we understand it in the United States, it has a lot of roots as a, as a concept, right, as a way for people to identify themselves and set themselves apart over and against other people. But part of it has to do with policing and surveillance of other people and sort of thinking that, that one has the right to tell other people what to do and especially where to go and how to be in spaces mm -hmm. and so on. And that's some of the earliest laws of slavery, right? Don't actually talk about property, right, or people as property, but they talk about which people are entitled to police other people, right? Uh, who's allowed to arrest runaways and who is exempted on punishment if they actually kill a runaway in the process of arresting them, right? Uh, and, and so 
the roots of modern policing, it's hard to deny that, you know, they, some of them lay actually back in this, this history that we're talking about. And I, I think challenging and confronting that, right, and, and forcing people who identify as white to say, well, wait a minute, what does it mean? Does it mean I really am on board with this? Right? And some people are going to say, yeah, I'm, I'm on board. I'm going to double down. I'm going to take my AR-15 and drive across state lines and, and try to police a protest, right? And we saw that, that recently with deadly effect. Uh, but, but I think other people are going to see, you know, videos of, of somebody calling 911 on, on, on folks for having a barbecue in the park, right? Uh, and say, this is ridiculous, right? Um, is, is this what my humanity comes down to? I, I don't think so. Mm-hmm. So we, we have to continually press this issue, right? People may be tar- might say, oh, I'm tired of hearing it. Well, imagine if you're on the other end of it, right? 866-801-8255. I just want to give out the number, and I'm going to get some callers in as well. Sina Gaznavi is here, of course, Dr. Jeffries, Dr. Baptist. Hey, Sina. I guess this is a question for maybe all three of you. Are, we're, I, I, I hear this feeling of optimism and the mission-driven and the goal-oriented approach, but are you all optimistic, actually, about the future? Because I have found myself not necessarily optimistic. In fact, I find myself the complete opposite, especially in the last, you know, a, a coronavirus aside, even if there wasn't a pandemic, right, I would still be in a very not optimistic place. What are, where, do you, where is your perspective on, on, on all these things in, in the future? Dr. Jeffries. Oh, yeah, don't all jump at once. Yeah, <laughs> Dr. Jeffries, don't, hit it first. Don't all speak at once, right? So I, I think history, history um, limits my optimism. Uh, and so I am not particularly optimistic in terms of the short term uh, for dramatic change, for moving uh, this nation, this, this, this country, this world in the direction that we need to go. Um, but I'll put an asterisk to that, because while I am not uh, particularly optimistic about where we will go in the immediate and short term, uh, I am very hopeful. Um, and, and that hope is also based in the past. Um, that hope is based not in some, you know, myth of perpetual progress in America. The hope is based on knowing that you have always had people who were willing to fight to create change. Right? And, that, and we're seeing another generation right now in the street. And while we may not be satisfied with the degree of progress or even the pace of progress, and there may be real obstacles that are getting bigger and stronger uh, before us, the reality is history tells us, and black folk have always been at the forefront of this in this country, that you will always find people who will fight. And because you always have people who are willing to fight for their freedom and willing to fight to secure those basic civil and human rights for everybody, that that's the way we have created change. It will come at a cost. There will be sacrifices, but there have always been people from the middle passage on forward. Uh, and so that, to me, uh, is, is the hope of the future, is knowing that we've had this, this history of this resistance, the persistence of resistance in the past, and there's no reason to assume that it's going to stop anytime soon. Yeah, I, I would go progress. Thank you. She's going to stick with me. Sorry, go ahead, Dr. Packers. Oh, sure. I, I was. I just want to, um, first of all, co-sign that. And uh, I, I think back to June when the the protests after the murder of George Floyd started to heat up, and there was a the morning I was working outside, and and I just started thinking of by that point literally millions of people coming out uh, on that weekend to, to protest in the streets. And the power of that is just incredible. I, 
I found myself literally laying on the ground, looking up at the sky saying, oh, my God, this is this is a powerful, powerful force. And it's a force so powerful that it it really can't be governed. Right. Uh, it's it's a force uh, for human freedom uh, that once it's unleashed, can only be put back in the bottle by the people themselves, uh, by them saying, mm-hmm. OK, we're tired, we can't do it or we have to go or we're scared or, or something. And there are lots of reasons to feel that way um I'm, I'm not knocking them but but a government can't control that level of power it's it's just not possible and so uh when large numbers of people come to the same conclusions as the seemingly small numbers of people who've been working you know bringing the ball forward mm. bringing the ball forward uh year after year organizing working really in the dark running away in the dark, right, uh, then they can literally change the world. It happened in the American Civil War, which really in many ways was a massive slave rebellion. Uh, it happened in the American Revolution. You could talk about 1776. Let's talk about uh, the 1,000 or more enslaved Virginians who went to join with uh, Lord Dunmore and fight against the George Washingtons and, and the, the so-called patriots. Uh, it's happened many times in U.S. history, and the result uh, has been change. You know? question is what what kind of change do we want um are we going to be able to to keep the energy moving forward uh what is the outcome of the election going to be and how how is that going to shape this kind of change and i don't know the answer to that but i do firmly believe that people uh collectively have have the greatest uh the greatest power they have more power than repressive forces Eight six six eight zero one eight two five five. i'll answer that after they leave because uh, I want I want to get the callers in. <laughs> Professor Hunter. Joe, okay. Joe in DC. <laughs> Joe in DC has been holding on. Welcome to the Karen Hunter Show. You're on with Cena Gaznavi at Cena Now, Professor Jeffries at Professor Jeffries, and Professor E Baptist at Ed underscore Baptist like John on the Twitters. Hey Joe. Uh I think you mean Jay, right? Okay, Jay. That's good. Yes, ma'am. Hey, Thank you very much. I just, I got a question for you. Uh, usually when these type of things happen, as far as the uh, evolution of the, of the uh, slave system, the U.S. slave system, it usually people that argue against it. Who are the good guys in the, uh, at the whole beginning of the U.S. Uh, uh, revolution? Thank you Were very much. Were there good guys? You're welcome. Jay, thank you. Were there good guys? Whatever that means, because it's all perspective, right? History is perspective, right? So at the time that these framers got together, I was talking about Jefferson earlier because I'm watching uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates with Oprah and I'm about to read uh, the, the, dance, the Water Dancer or whatever. And, uh, you know, he went back to Monticello. You know, Jefferson's a hero. He's on our $20 bill. We think of him as this great erudite thinker who framed this constitution as a brilliant man, but he owned more than 600 people. He raped Sally Hemings, had children with her, held people in bondage, didn't free his own children. Like, one could say he was despicable, but his perspective, right? At the time, everybody was doing it. Was it bad well, if everybody was doing it? Well, I, w- I would say that there, like everybody wasn't doing it, right? Certainly there are, you know, you got a million enslaved folk who are like, hey. Oh, Jackson. Wait, I'm sorry. Let me correct. Hold on. Hold on. Let me correct myself. It's Jackson that's on the 20. Jefferson is on what? The nickel? He's on the nickel. And the $2 and the bill, two. which nobody and uses. I apologize. Yeah. Go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt <laughs> you. I just need to correct myself no, you know, in the moment. No, you're fine. I, you know, I, I, I think it's important to realize and recognize that not everybody was doing it, right? Like Jefferson, Madison, Washington, they all have boys, right? Like Madison has boys who, he, who he's inviting over to dinner and Dolly Madison, 
you know, has her enslaved folk making him ice cream, right? And they're telling him what you're doing is wrong, right? Like this is, and you're going to pay a price for it. And what is Madison's response and Jefferson's response to their boys, their people? They're like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Actually, we know you're right, right? I mean, they're, they're literally like, yeah, this is wrong. We know it's wrong. But you know what? We can't give it up because we have too much personally invested. Like this wasn't, for, like we look back at this history, right? And so you do, there are good, there are always good folks. There are always folks who realize that this stuff is wrong, right? On either side of the color line. But we look back and we pretend, right? Like, like somebody like for Madison, that somehow slavery, this is the architect of the constitution, that slavery was like a side hustle for him, like a side gig. This dude was a third generation enslaver. This was the family business. And it's the same thing with Jefferson. It's the same thing with Washington in terms of moving in and out of the industry. Like, this is what they did. But there were always people around them who, who said that what you're doing is wrong. And so one of the things that we, we always have to push back on is this notion of, of trying to rationalize away evil. Well, they just did it because everybody else was doing the same thing, right? They didn't know any better. They were just men or women of their time. And it's like, no, no, no. Even they themselves wrote that it was wrong, but they didn't have the moral courage to step away from this evil institution. What about Ben Franklin? Ben Franklin's on the better side of the ledger, right? I mean, you know, but he wasn't an abolitionist. He might not have owned people, but he wasn't an abolitionist. You know, Ben Franklin's main focus by the 1770s and 1780s is how do we get an independent country that unites both the northern, the middle, and the southern colonies? And so he's very careful, even when he, for instance, goes and visits Phyllis Wheatley, right? Uh, and he uh, promotes her as a, as a poet in, in his, um, uh, in his uh, newspaper and so on. He's very careful not to come out and say, uh, we have to end slavery in our new country, uh, because otherwise we're enslaving uh, the next Phyllis Wheatley, the next 10,000 Phyllis Wheatleys, right? Um, we have to end it um, because... She demonstrates to us that what we're doing is morally wrong, and we know that that's what she demonstrates to us, right? And that every single enslaved person demonstrates to us. He, so he he really walks the line because he wants to be able to have these conversations with uh, French philosophers and so on and so forth. But he also doesn't want South Carolina and Georgia to walk out of the Constitutional Convention. Were there any so abolitionists? Lack of moral courage. Lack of moral sure. courage. Any any abolitionists? Abolitionists among those framers? Any? Among the framers themselves, they're, they're pretty hard to find. <laughs> but, uh, but they were getting pushed, first of all, uh, by one million enslaved people. Uh, and, and there were whites as well. Uh, Anthony Benizet, uh, somebody who Franklin knew in, in Philadelphia, really was the first um, well-known white abolitionist. In, uh, in the United States, uh, and, and he made a, a huge contribution to getting the critique of the Atlantic slave trade out there in, in, front, of, uh, in front of the eyes of people who maybe were, were sort of sitting on the fence about whether or not this was something that demanded their, you know, their, their moral choice or not. You came on, and we're going to continue this conversation. We're going to have you back many, many times. I don't know why it's taking this long to have you back, uh, Dr. Baptist. Oh, because I wanted to have you in studio. And then during COVID, I could have you in studio. Yeah. Look at this. And now I've got Dr. Jeffries who can come in anytime from Ohio. Anytime. This is wonderful. <laughs> uh, not that COVID's wonderful, but it has connected us in a way I never imagined. Um, how can we help freedom on the move? You said this is for us. 
that we can participate. Freedomonthemove.org is where people can go. What do we do when we get there? So what you can do is uh, you can sign up. You can get an account. You can go in there. You can help us to um, to transcribe or, or take information out from particular ads. But what's maybe even more important than that, and that's the sort of crowdsourcing part of it, right? But what's even more important than that, I think, is if you're part of a community organization, um, if you're interested in genealogy, uh, if you're interested in local history, if you're interested in replacing those Confederate monuments with something that's actually about freedom, um, start to talk about it in your local community. Um, if you're interested in education, Professor Jeffries made a great case for why education, uh, public education is important, whether or not you have kids, right? Because it's shaping your own future, what kind of community you're going to live in. Advocate uh, for uh, curriculum that includes this kind of education about history. Professor Jeffries can 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 talk about the wider curriculum that he's been involved in developing, and you can advocate for that as well. Yeah, so you know, and, and as, as a supplement, uh, one of the projects that I've been working on is with the with teaching tolerance, which is the educational wing of the Southern Poverty Law Center. Uh, and over the last couple of years, we've developed a framework for teaching uh, and understanding uh, American slavery. Uh, so there's a framework for educators with resources for high school, middle school. We just finished up uh, one for the elementary school. Uh, there's a podcast that I host that is just for that is for teachers, but then it's also called Teaching Hard History. Um, that the first two years we did first year on American slavery, second year on the enslavement of indigenous people, and this year we're looking at um, the Black freedom struggle, civil rights, uh, and so we're sort of bringing it forward. And so this isn't just for you know, it's, it's hands-on work for educators, and this is teachers, and this is how you can approach it and teach it. But it really is for everybody. I mean, to go back to uh, a Cena's question of what can I do and how can I continue to learn, you know, there are those resources where we have to be continue, continually engaged in this process uh, of learning. We have to be lifelong learners uh, because we also have a lot of unlearning to do, and that process also never ends. Well, we're going to continue to beat that drum here on the Karen Hunter Show. You guys have an open yeah. seat at this table anytime. It's a pleasure meeting you for the first time, but I feel like I know you, Professor Jeffries and Edward Baptist. One love, brother. You will, of course, uh, have dramatically impacted my life. Thank you guys so much for being here today. Thank you.